Here, the third one sucks. We support Black Lives Matter and stand in solidarity with those protesting against the systemic racism, police brutality, senseless murder of people of color, and especially those in the black community. We encourage everyone listening to contribute however they are able and have left a handful of links in the description where you can put any spare cash you might have to good use. No justice, no peace. Stay safe out there, everybody. Welcome to The Third One Sucks, where we rank every movie in a franchise from first to worst. I'm Dan Ellis. I'm Mark Bell. And what are we going to talk about today, Mark? We are talking about wolf children as we continue through the works of Mamoru Hosoda. Wolf Children is an animated fantasy film produced by Studio Chizu, directed by Mamoru Hosoda, and distributed by Toho. It features the voice work of Aoi Miyazaki, Takoa Osawa, Haru Kuroki, and Yukito Nishi, among others, and premiered in France, of all places, on June 25th, 2012. An interesting fan review this week. What is our fan review? Well, our fan review this week comes from Google Fan Reviews and is from Robert Jones, good old Bobby Jones, which says, It is a good movie. It makes me want to turn into a wolf. <laughs> and like, okay, here's here's where we're going to break this down because werewolves are dope, Mark. I don't know if you knew this, but werewolves are actually pretty fucking sick because cause it's just a cool aesthetic. Problem is, most media makes it really boring and they go like just the like boring gothic horror route but not this movie <laughs> so let's get into it because this is a solid two-hour movie yeah it's uh it's it's got a lot of content here's what i'm curious about right off the top because it's a very i would call this a very meaty movie mm-hmm. uh, which is to say it's a thick two hours and those hours are full there, I don't feel like there are very many wasted scenes or even really very many wasted minutes in this entire movie. Mm-hmm. That said, if pressed to sort of describe it, you could almost boil it down to two or three sentences. Yeah. So I'm real curious to see because a lot of the previous Hasoda movies we've talked about have been very plot twisty turny. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on. There's multiple layers, multiple locations, multiple realities layered on top of each other frequently. There's deceptions and twists and surprises. Mm -hmm. This movie is very straightforward, focused in pretty much one spot about one family. And it's not like high action. Uh, It's not the fate of the world is not at stake or anything. It's a much simpler movie in a lot of ways than what we've seen so far. Yeah, it's the first time in Hosoda's career that he said, you know that thing that I do real good about interpersonal relationships, specifically between family and found Mm -hmm. family? What if I just did a whole movie that was that? Yeah, and zoned in very specifically, not just on like found family or uh, teenagers or like school kids, but he zoned in really specifically on a mom and her young children. It is an emotionally draining movie in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that negatively because it's also an inspiring movie and it can really kind of fill up your bucket, I think. Mm-hmm. But it is for all that it is a kind of simple family piece. It is a 
it is a deep emotional well to explore. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. So let's get into this. I had forgotten until I watched this again that the opening narration and flashback is a solid 20 minutes. It's really much more of a first act than it is an opener. We open with the narration of the daughter, the young girl that this film is one of the three main characters in this film. And she is kind of narrating her mom's backstory. And in my head, that is like a five minute process. I remembered the big beats of the backstory. Mom and dad meet, fall in love, have a couple of kids. Dad dies young. I had forgotten how much of the life we get to watch between her mother and father. I also thought that going back into this movie, I also opted to watch in Japanese this time around, as opposed Mm. to our other films where I have. Well, I guess I've kind of jumped around. We mostly sure. stuck to English when it was available. I realized that I had never watched this film in Japanese. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I had always just watched the dub. And I have a new appreciation for this film having watched the Japanese. Interesting. Um, I think especially in these first... This is kind of counterintuitive, but especially in these first like 20 minutes mm. where... I felt like I related to these characters more and I kind of felt the tone that it was going for a little better this time around. It kind of really sunk into my head that like, oh, these are like college age kids yeah. just trying to get through the day and like going to the grocery store. And like it, it felt I've related to it more this time around for whatever reason. And especially those first 20 minutes, which, like you said. I had always thought was like five minutes until <laughs> right. I I looked over at my clock uh, towards the end of this. And I was like, whoa, oh, this this took up more time than I remember. And it didn't feel like it took that long. It feels like it takes five minutes. Um, <laughs> but there's so much good there that I almost wish we could have seen like this. I'm going to probably say this a couple times throughout this, but I wish that this movie in retrospect was like a 12 episode series. Mm, okay. Yeah. And not because the movie drags at any point, because I don't think it does. I think it uses its two hours very well. Mm-hmm. But because I think there's just more of those individual characters that we could explore and chew on. That I agree. I, I just want to live with them longer, Mark, is what I'm trying to say. Because this movie wants, and this is maybe a discussion we should be having at the end, but who knows. Mm-hmm. Because this movie wants to tell a story that spans about 15 years from when mom and dad meet to when the youngest son turns 10. It by necessity has to sort of fast forward through some stuff. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you that there are characters and even like moments in time that I would have liked to have been able to live in a little more. I wanted to front load us with that because there's going to be times where I'm like, I wish we got more of this particular thing mm-hmm. as we walk through this movie. We'll call them out. Yeah. As we tag mm-hmm. along. So in this opening narration, mom is a college student. Dad is just sort of. What's that called? Auditing classes, taking them for not credit. He's doing what any the I, I I resonate with this dad so hard because he's just like this like poor working class. Yeah. Dude. Like and he's like has this hunger for knowledge, but he can't afford school because, you know, he's just a working class dude. Right. So like he's just I don't know how you, you phrase this. I guess you could say he's stealing from the university, but like <laughs> tuition is so fucking high that they're robbing right. you. Right. So, yep. He's just sneaking into classes and and enriching himself intellectually. Yeah. And I will tell you, and you're right, it's kind of watching these kids in college is adorable, but 
I am so immediately invested in this love story. And across the span of about 12 minutes, Mm -hmm. this film is going to tell a better love story than most rom-coms ever get close to. It's real good. It feels so genuine and real. You notice it like just right off the bat when they're like, I mean, we're still talking about this opening segment. So I'm going to say we're here already. When he picks up that kid, when he walks out of that first class and like Mm -hmm. calms him down instantly. She's just like, I need to have this man's babies, like right now. Yeah. It's all over her face. (laughs) She is just like instantly head over heels for this dude. And we just get little vignettes. We get little bits of them at college. We see them buying their first apartment together. We see them like doing some grocery shopping and sharing some meals. And all of those moments are so sincere and pure and good. And I don't know how or why, because they're, you know, 30 second little scenes. It is so accurate for me and it pulled me back as i was watching it more this time than the first time i had watched it to legitimately the early days of my marriage when we rented a like 300 apartment and scraped the money together that we had to buy basic meals and things in that weird newlywed space is just profound and powerful and there's this sort of sense of like we don't really have a lot of money but it doesn't matter because we're building a life together and that's fun and beautiful and this movie found that spot Mm -hmm. and watching it this time really reconnected me to that empowering excitement of figuring it out together the first time yeah uh not married but um it likewise rocketed me back to doing the whole like beginnings of a relationship thing and yeah. where you're just kind of like living your casual everyday lives together when you get to that point in the relationship and it's not just we meet on the weekend for dates right right <laughs> and instead you just end up just spending all your time not working together the moments where she's just like shopping like by herself and like you can just see that like she's like i wish i was with him and it's like yeah. all over her face or like when he's like driving and doing his job at work and you can just see it all over his face. It's like, I really wish I was just with Hana right now. It's so pure and beautiful and it almost brings a tear to my eye right now. Just like yeah, thinking back on it. And it covers, you know, from there it covers the birth of their first child, mm-hmm. who we know as Yuki, and the birth of their second child. And... Just again in these little vignettes, the joy they share as a family, and specifically, I think, the delight they have as a couple and in each other's eyes as they're building a family, is it's all very endearing. And what I wrote in my notes at the end of this chunk, because we go through this sort of setup, this 15 to 17 minutes of meeting, falling in love, building a home, and then building a family. There's this real sense of domestic bliss. And I hate that phrase because it kind of has this loaded, like, 1950s faux nostalgia. Right. But I think this movie adequately represents what domestic bliss might actually be. And so it's building all of that, and it's so beautiful. And then, of course, the father dies. That's that's the kickoff. That's the jump-off point for this story. And I wrote in my notes, I hate this part of the movie very much. I love it. I love this part of the movie very much. (laughs) We've kind of breezed past two very important things, uh, which is like one is the death, which we will get to. But the moment where he like, for lack of a better term, like comes out to Hana and is like, yo, I'm a wolf man. Uh, Is this like, is this cool? Are we still good? And she just like loves him anyway is very wholesome and very good. 
And it's a little weird because it's a werewolf and then it cuts to like werewolf man like smooching up on yeah. lady. For a little second there, it's a little awkward, but the underpinnings of the message is very good. Yes, the idea that someone says to their beloved, this is who I am, and their mm-hmm. beloved answers, I see you and I love you, mm-hmm. is so moving and so good. And that's the only reason that the scene that follows it doesn't immediately take you out of the film where right. <laughs> there's a lady smooching a wolf. <laughs> I like to imagine, because the angles don't work, mm-hmm. like their lips don't connect. Right, they So don't. in my head, I just picture him nuzzling her. Oh, I like that better. You made it wholesome. <laughs> I mean, they're totally boning, but like the nuzzle oh, is yeah, cute. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't imagine what's going on below the neck. <laughs> yeah, we're not. Who's to say? <laughs> Maybe they're playing patty cake. We don't know. <laughs> it could be anything going on down there. So... He also tells her there's a little bit of backstory. He says effectively he is the last of, at least to his knowledge, the last of the lycanthropes in this part of the world. His parents told him they were the last ones. And so when they died, he presumes, and the movie never gives us any reason to think otherwise, that he is the last of the werewolves. And then shortly after the birth of his second child, his son, he dies. We don't really know why. The movie suggests that maybe he was out hunting for food for his family, but it's all conjecture. I love that, though. I love that they don't tell you exactly what happened. Like, yep. we, sh- like we just fuck. Uh, it's such a gutting scene. And, like, I understand that people don't like it because you don't want to watch it happen. <laughs> but, like, I'm like, I get to cry? Hell yes. <laughs> I get a socially acceptable reason to cry right now? Let's get this shit going. <laughs> to be crystal clear, I think this movie is great and this moment is perfect and I think it belongs where it belongs Mm -hmm. and it delivers powerfully. I don't think the movie has the punch it has without this scene. And I love this scene, but I also hate this scene because it is so gut-wrenching. And so when I say I hate it, it is not like, boy, I wish this scene wasn't in this movie. This movie needs this scene. It is just, it tears your guts out. It does. They put him in a trash bag. And yeah. just throw his body in a dump truck, and she can do nothing about it. Because he's in wolf form when he died. Right. So they're just, you know, it's basically animal control shows up to take the body away. Like, what do you do? Don't take away that wild animal. That's my husband? Right. There's no option. So she doesn't even get, you know, a, a funeral or anything in that vein. There is no way for her to sort of to say farewell to him in what would be the normal social structure for her. Mm-hmm. It's hard. And then, of course, she has to go and tell her daughter. Her son is going to recognize the absence, but he's not old enough to have this conversation with. Mm-hmm. But her daughter is. She has to go and tell her kid that her father's not coming home. Well, I mean, her daughter's with her. Like, she takes those kids with her when she's running out looking for them because she can't leave the newborn Yeah, it's true. So she just straps them on either side of her torso and runs off looking for him yeah. <laughs> when he doesn't come back after getting groceries. This is, I think, a fear that, I can't speak for every parent, obviously, but this is a fear that I imagine most parents and all good parents have. The terror of thinking, what if something happens to me? Mm-hmm. And I've got an exceptionally strong and competent and capable wife. Nonetheless, the th- imagining leaving your wife and child is devastating Mm -hmm. and and 
I know movies are movies. I am not really good at leaving my emotions at the gate. Right. And the older I get, the worse I am at that. And I've talked before, I, I don't like movies where young children are threatened since I've had a kid. It plays on my emotions in weird ways. Mm-hmm. But holy cats, maybe I was in a vulnerable state when I rewatched it the second time. But this was a real weepy scene. It's a sad scene. I know many people cry at this scene. Mm-hmm. But man, just like I had this moment of thinking, what if my daughter never saw me again? How much would she remember me? What like what would her life look like after that? It's hard. And this is this is minute 16 or 17 mm-hmm. in a movie that's going to keep going way beyond this. This movie is coming gunning out of the gate. Right. We've seen like 12 percent of this movie so far. <laughs> yeah. And the daughter that we've been talking about is the one doing the narration. So all of this has happened effectively in a flashback as the daughter at uh, an indeterminate age is kind of reflecting back. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of it is her memories, but most of it is obviously built on what her mother has told her. Mm -hmm. And the movie picks up then on the life of a single mother raising two children in the city with minimal income. Mm-hmm. And it is also heartbreaking. This movie takes you for a ride, huh? It just goes immediately from like two love struck college kids who are going to make it and they'll do anything for each other and they can't wait to have a house. Wouldn't it be great to have a house where I could put all my books? Right. To, <laughs> Dad is dead. Mom has to figure out how to raise two half wolf babies on her own the government's kicking down her door because she didn't vaccinate them vaccinate your fucking kids audience but it, within the right, context of this movie yes. we understand what why she would <laughs> want to do that yeah because until her kids are old enough that she can tell them don't change into a wolf she can't mm-hmm. risk anyone seeing them mm-hmm. and so not only is she a single mom raising two children she does not have access to almost any of the societal support structures that should be there for someone in that situation to tap into Mm -hmm. because of who her children are. She doesn't have access to them. And listen, I'm a middle-aged middle-class white man, so I am not going to speak in depth on the obvious analogies and comparisons that there are to be made. Mm -hmm. But listener, I do invite you to consider that when you, because of the, type of person that society has decided you are do not have the same access to societal support systems that mm-hmm. other more privileged people do it is terrifying and this movie again it's about a werewolf i know mm-hmm. i know it's about a werewolf but still that is a very bleak lesson to look at yeah i mean it's about werewolves but it's also a movie deeply entrenched in identity and yes. especially now some kids who maybe do not fit the definition of what you think a kid should be trying to get medical care yes is topical (laughs) right now and it's hard to not read it through that lens It, it truly is yeah and again i'm the least useful voice in this conversation and even for me it jumps right out sure so okay Mom is trying to make it through. As you say, child welfare is showing up. Uh, she can't take her kids to the doctors. There's just all of these hurdles that are making city life nearly impossible, especially as her kids are sort of aging into the place where they're exploring. She can't just, you know, strap them both to her hips and head out. Mm-hmm. 
and she makes the decision to move to the country mm-hmm. and not in a sort of like going to eat a lot of peaches way. Right. <laughs> not in a cutesy Hallmark movie way where the country is really just code for like a slightly smaller town. <laughs> what if it was? What if it pivoted right here and instead of the movie that we got, she goes back and she meets working class Jim Bob who just needed to show her how she needed to be a housewife all along and right. give up her job in the big city. <laughs> that would have been a very different and very well, disappointing movie. <laughs> But this is very much fleeing to the most remote place she can get while still having some chance at survivability. (laughs) And she moves out to basically like the side of a mountain where farmsteads are spaced out every handful of miles. It's half an hour into town. It's half an hour plus to school. There are multiple miles between neighbors, and she buys a kind of ramshackle old farmhouse and decides that that's where they're going to make their their kind of last stand as a family. Yeah, as this movie goes on, I'm racking my brain, trying to think of, there's the phrase strong female character that gets tossed around a lot by, sure, yep. by both people who are well-intentioned and people who are not. <laughs> accurate but is hannah the strongest female character because when you're trying to write or you're consuming media with women who are kind of pushed into the role of hashtag strong female characters there's a lot of times that they either try to make them like high femme to counterbalance mm-hmm. uh right. something like hyper violence so that it like hyper violence is masculine so you have to make her high femme to kind of balance that out and uh, like, and, and that's that's valid. Like, Bayonetta can sure, be a yep. great power fantasy for women if they want it. But like, she doesn't sacrifice any of the things that make her feminine, and yet it's like still has this like strong core. Like, it's not like a masculine yes. interpretation of what strength is. Like, I usually see. That's a very good way to put it. Yes. So, she settles into. Farm life mm-hmm. with the intent that by living rurally, one, her kids can be more open with who they are, uh, but also it gives her children not just like the protection of being remote, but it gives them access to both civilization and the wild so that they can explore both parts of who they are in equal measure. Again, this is about being werewolves, but the profundity of a parent who looks at their child and says, I can see that you're attempting to figure out who they who you are. So rather than script you into what I want you to be, mm-hmm. I will give you access to explore yourself and find out who you are. She literally gives them a space to explore their identity. Yeah, what a powerful choice. And there's going to be a moment when her son is... 10 and making a choice that I think she does not want him to make Mm -hmm. where she struggles with it. But even there, she comes down on the right side, Mm -hmm. but the the ability to look at two toddlers and give them the access and tools and physical space they need to critically examine themselves and to be supportive about the entire process is this lady's just amazing. She's such a good mom. (laughs) She's real good. What she's not real good at, though, is farming, at least not initially. She's not a real good farmer. It is critical to understand that she does not have a job. How could she? 
Mm-hmm. She's got two toddlers, no vehicle, and she lives in the middle of nowhere. The plan moving out here was survive on what meager savings we have and then live off the land as well. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know much about farming. She acquires some farming books, which is endearing because that is also my answer for things I don't know. Like, I can just book learn it. Mm-hmm. Not always a viable option. Book learning is not always a viable option. Really. Right. And she learns that, but also that it's all totally in character. Yep, absolutely. She meets in just little tiny bits a couple of her neighbors, just almost in passing. And as they're initially settling in, there's this dichotomy building between her kids. Yuki, the elder daughter, who loves being a wolf, loves to explore, loves the wild, this is perfect for her. All she wants to do is run and play in all of the dangerous places. She's like this tiny little tomboy who's all about bugs and critters and like is just blown away at all this <laughs> space she has to just be a hyperactive toddler in. Right. And Ame, the younger son, who is none of those things. He is timid. He is cautious. He is not really interested in engaging with the wilderness or sort of with his own wolf side. And the movie frames this very early for us that the older sister is more connected initially to all of that aspect, to the wilderness, to the wild exploration That kind of locks in for the beginning of this family's dynamic. Mm -hmm. And this is also where the mom has to teach them, one, to be nice to other animals, and two, that this is a secret that they have to keep to themselves. This is also a heartbreaking discussion. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the mom has good intentions. Obviously, there would be a lot of problems if civilization knew that werewolves were living in the farm. Mm -hmm. I get it, but it is still very, very hard to have to hear a mom kind of trying to summon cheerfulness while telling her children to hide a thing that is not only important to them, but very important to her. She loved the wolf in her husband, and she loves that her children remind her of that and that they carry on their father's legacy. Mm-hmm. And you can see her fighting to summon this sort of false paternal cheerfulness to say like, oh, it's okay. You just just need to trust mommy not to tell people. It's tough. It's what's today. It's the middle of June right now, June 17th. And the idea that I've, we're very white, we're two very white men. But the idea <laughs> of a mother having to sit down and explain to her child, hey, don't don't be a wolf in front of these people. And you got to be nice and polite. And if a police yep. officer tells you to do something, you need to do it. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, As we mentioned at the top, it's hard. It's hard not to read social commentary into this. Yeah. And so when it comes to this particular discussion, that social commentary gets extra ugly. Mm-hmm. Not inaccurate, mind you. Just extra ugly. Just Yeah, it's just unpleasant to feel in your body. Which, I mean, and we're white, so like... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we, only, we only have to feel it when we're talking about it. <laughs> so, mom doesn't know how to raise wolves. She was okay with raising humans, mm-hmm. but because she knows how to meet a human's needs for 
food and love and shelter and all of that. But she doesn't know how to meet their needs when they're wolves. And obviously wolves need to learn wolf skills. Right. Rather than telling them, just spend all of your time as a human. Again, she goes to books, which is maybe not the best resource, but it's the only one she has. (laughs) She goes to books and says, all right, well, I'm going to figure out how to help my kids get what they need. It's obviously tough for her. Yuki continues to love the whole wolf thing. Ame continues to struggle with the whole wolf thing. Mm -hmm. And the family in this moment, there's this sense of freedom that the movie wants you to feel because they've found this rural place where they can be more of themselves, where they're connecting to each other, where they're finding safety and comfort. But that sense of freedom is hindered by the fact that they have no money and are struggling to get any food out of their land and they still have to hide who they are. And it's this really incredible dichotomy of finding peace in uncertainty. Mm-hmm. And the first sort of turn in fortunes that we see for Hannah and her family is when their grumpy old neighbor, uh, Nirosaki, is that right? Is that grandpa's name? Nirosaki. Nirosaki. That, that R in particular is pronounced like a D. As it's, they sometimes are. When he, I, I will say befriends them, but it takes a bit before we're clear that he is being friendly. But we have watched from the moment when dad died till now, we have watched mom just desperately struggling to hold everything together herself. And her fortunes have mostly fallen. She has, you know, had child welfare called on her. She has had to leave the city. She can't figure out how to farm. And this is the first moment where we see an external force. We see something other than Hana act for Hana's benefit. I've seen uh, old man Nidasaki described as like Grandpa Sundere, which delights <laughs> me. He's just like walking around like, it's not like I want to help you or anything. Right. (laughs) Ah, he's so badly, like something in him sees this family struggling to farm their land. Mm -hmm. And very clearly he wants to help because he would have no reason to be here otherwise (laughs) and, and no reason to keep coming back. But his entire identity is built around being a gruff old man. So he's got to find a way to frame it. Mm -hmm. And critically, Hana has to figure out a way to invite this man in while letting him cling to his old man pride. <laughs> I feel so much like Nidasaki on my, like, no spoon days, where <laughs> I am just like, I've had it with the world around me, and I don't want to interact with anybody, and everyone can fuck off and leave me alone, but also <laughs> you're doing it wrong, or you're going to hurt yourself, let me do this because I care right. I care about you, but God damn it, I wish I was doing anything else with this. <laughs> and he is, in some senses, the sort of watershed for the rest of the community, because mm-hmm. once he connects, everyone else says, all right, well, we can go chat. And there's an interesting moment, because when her neighbors show up and start talking, and she says, oh, it's good to see you, The neighbors say, oh, we just presumed you wanted your privacy, so we kind of left you alone. Mm -hmm. The powerful relief that she feels when she has a community around her is incredible. Mm -hmm. And this is not the podcast to get into it, but man, the sense of like, 
that weird balance of speaking and asking for help and not wanting to bother people. And on the other side, like the weird balance between reaching out, not reaching out, making assumptions, being a good neighbor, being intrusive. Like there's just so many layers of interaction at play here that are all solved by a grumpy old man just deciding he needs to be here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And suddenly she has a community and it's a small community, certainly, but it's a by necessity close knit community. Mm -hmm. And shortly thereafter, the women of the community start meeting at her place sometimes to hang out. Everyone starts offering her help on the farm, advice on the farm, sometimes conflicting advice, which is delightful. Yeah. There's one old man or one middle-aged man who is insistent that she needs to plant a bunch of chamomile. Mm-hmm. It's not important or significant to the movie at all, but there's an exchange where two of the farmers are telling her what she should plant in the field. And the one guy keeps saying chamomile and the other guy's getting increasingly angry and say, what's she going to do? Eat tea leaves all day long. And I don't know why, but that, that exchange makes me giggle every time. Mm-hmm. I live in rural Oklahoma. Yep. Things really do be like that. <laughs> and early on, Nidasaki is encouraging Hana to clear out more ground than she needs and to plant way more potatoes than she thinks is necessary. Mm -hmm. And when harvest time comes, her potato yield. She has, sorry, she has to plow up that whole second field. She's like, but I only have two kids. We can't eat all. He's just like, are you, (laughs) did you not hear me? Are you, I said, plow up this other field. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, He's so he so wants to be helpful and also is so angry that he has to be doing this. Right. <laughs> and the yield is, of course, enormous at harvest time, and she has to share with her neighbors. Mm-hmm. And when she's passing out literal sacks full of potatoes, she comes back to Nidasaki and says, I see now. I see why you were telling me to plant more. Because we all have to look out for each other. Because we live in a society. Yes. Because, yeah, because we can all take care of each other this way. <laughs> and listen, I know it's an oversimplification to just talk about, you know, a dozen families like farming for sustenance. Mm-hmm. But doggone it, the fact that no one ever talks about money or cares about money and all they're doing is like, here, I made this and there's enough of it for you to have some. Is mm-hmm. it's, it's so good. It's almost like if we didn't put arbitrary limits on. <laughs> right. <laughs> Anyway, not the space for that well, conversation, but y'all both know what we're getting at. You got it. You got it. You're, there. You're with us. All right. So a season or two passes as Hannah and her children are finding the rhythm of life on the mountain. Mm-hmm. When the time comes, Yuki finds out about school and she really, really, really wants to go. Mm-hmm. And as much as I think Hana would prefer that she keep her children home and safe where she can watch them at all times, there's really no option here, mm-hmm. at least as far as the movie is concerned, as far as Hana's concerned. Yuki wants to go to school, and if she's going to exist as a human in Japan, she's probably going to need to do that. Mm-hmm. So, Yuki goes to school and sort of, she immediately loves it. She has some challenges adapting mm-hmm. initially. Because, you know, she has spent her life playing with snakes and collecting animal bones and things. And that is not 
I guess, a common thing for kindergartners. So the other girls think she's weird for a bit. Mm-hmm. And neither of us are women. Neither of us have been girls. I don't know that we have the space to address this. But there is also, there's some profundity in the fact that she looks around and says, I want to be accepted, and so I need to wear different clothes and have different hobbies. That is also another critically challenging point in this movie. Yeah, there is, this movie is constantly throwing layers of like, (laughs) of things at you. Like, yeah, it's, I don't know if we are the right people to unpack all of that, but there is definitely a lot at play there in regards to like assimilation and doing what is seen as the norm and gender roles and the pressure on women to act and appear more feminine. Right. That is like the C or D or E story in this movie, but it's still there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's just a piece in a much bigger story that's being told, but it's there. It's acknowledged. Yep. So our next major kind of turning point comes in a difficult winter. Uh, They find snow. They love snow. It's delightful. Mm -hmm. But while they are out and about, Ame falls into the river. Yes. After this gorgeous, like, romp through the forest scene, which is... Oh, it's beautiful. It's still good now. Every time I go back to watch it, it's still one of the highlights of the movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. He falls into a river going after, like, a kingfisher, I think is what the bird is. He's like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do a wolf thing. And then he catches it, but then he trips. This is beautiful symbolism, Mark. He trips on the (laughs) human part of himself. Like, he trips over the scarf into the river and it impedes his ability to be a wolf. Good. Yep. It's real good, Mark. It's just a tiny little thing, but it's real good. It is so good, especially because this represents, this is like the, the fulcrum of this film is this winter. And in some ways, the center of this winter vignette Mm -hmm. is this moment. As you say, the whole movie is sort of examining sense of self and, who who these children are and where they feel they belong. And at the kernel at the center of this movie, you're right, is exactly that moment where the human in him is up impeding the wolf in him. And it's so wild. It's just it's so perfectly structured. And this is the moment for him. He emerges from the river having you know, once he wakes back up having lost his sense of fear and having lost his timidity and having lost his confusion, he wakes up suddenly more comfortable with who he is Mm -hmm. and who he wants to be. He's learning to embrace the wolf. Scared his mother and his sister half to death by falling into a lake in the (laughs) middle of winter. But yeah, otherwise, yeah. Yeah. So, this is now where Yuki goes to school after this winter. She's been wanting to go when the next spring or, or the next school season rolls around. She starts school and Hana gets a job at a nature sanctuary. Having initially gone there because she heard they had a captive wolf and she thought, my son is starting to sort of figure out this wolf thing. Maybe somehow, maybe I can appeal to this wolf and he can teach my kid <laughs> the stuff that I can't. And again, props to that mom for trying to find ways and people to educate her son uh, where she can't. It's cool. And while the wolf is not of any use in this context because he was always uh, like a zoo wolf or something, 
it does land Hannah a job. She starts working at this nature sanctuary, and that's great for her son because it gives him opportunity to learn more. And this is a character moment for Ame in particular because he sees this wolf caged and like in captivity. Mm. And it's like literally putting on screen like what this character is feeling. He's like, this wolf is sad because he can't do the wolf things. He's stuck in this cage. (laughs) This is the only way he can be safe around people. Mark, do you get what I'm saying here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's great. Shortly after this, and this is where we start getting some kind of time passing. (laughs) So Yuki learns to fit in. And uh, there is some challenge there, like we said earlier, about like making changes to adapt and feeling the need to dress and act a certain way to be accepted. There's also an argument to be made, I think, that as Yuki gets more exposure to the human world, much as her brother is doing on the wilderness side of things, she is feeling a pull to that. She is sensing that this is what she wants and where she belongs. Mm-hmm. I don't love the sort of assimilation and conformist stuff that comes with it, but mm-hmm. you know that's a different discussion. Yeah. It is clear that Yuki has found her sense of self, and she even says, I found my pack. Mm-hmm. A year later, her younger brother starts school, and it does not go as well for him. He's the timid, bullied kid. I don't know how much timidity he has, especially after the river incident, but like he's... Sure. We always just kind of see him by himself or being picked He's on. the weird, quiet kid, and when you are the weird, quiet kid, that makes you a target. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You're weird, and I don't like that. And you're also quiet, which means you won't tell anyone. Perfect. Right. (laughs) And we just get like a five-minute, maybe, kind of sequence of individual scenes to show us that a few school years have passed. Mm -hmm. And we see Yuki continuing to grow and thrive in school, and we see Ame continuing to be increasingly frustrated by school. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of that to some extent is just to age the characters up, but also to show us that as they grow, they're both sensing more of who they are and where they belong. Right. And in the background of all this, we don't even see this happen on screen. In the background of all of this, Ame is finding himself in the wilderness. He's meeting a teacher, a sensei, Mm -hmm. uh, and he is figuring out what he needs from life that isn't school. He friends, we find out this like old fox who's just like the self-prescribed, I guess, king of the mountain. Yeah, I love it. Why is a fox the, like what did that fox do to get every other animal's respect? I, I love this fox. Yeah, <laughs> the, the bears are just like, sure, whatever. It is halfway between like the king of the mountain and also in a sense like the sort of guardian spirit of the mountain. Mm-hmm. He's the mountain god. Yeah, and we don't get to see a lot of him. But we get to see what he means to Ame. And while Ame is doing that, Yuki is meeting a boy. Yeah. (laughs) Which is equally sort of informative for her, to Mm -hmm. be fair. And so is the boy in question is a pretty great character, too. He is. He's he's an elementary school boy, 100%. Yep. And he's sort of intentionally or unintentionally teasing or badgering Yuki He knows something's going on with her. He kind of offends her initially by saying she smells like a dog. Mm -hmm. He didn't know that. You know, he was just being a boy saying what's in his brain because that's what children do. Right. But he can sense that he's upset her and he keeps trying to say, like, it's okay. You can talk to me about it. It's okay. 
Yuki in embarrassment and fear and certainly kind of some sense of growing older and grappling with sort of new relationships. She briefly turns into a wolf and attacks his ear. Well, attacks his head, but she gets his ear. Right. The school records it as a fight, summons both of their parents to talk about it, and he senses that this is going to be big trouble for her. So he makes up a story and says, no, no, it was just like a wolf came out of the woods and attacked me. Yeah, he's like, a wolf did it. It was a wolf. It, was, it wasn't It was this girl that I totally think is cute. It was a wolf. Right. <laughs> right? And I mean, the thing is, he's not lying. Mm-hmm. And she is so stricken with embarrassment because she almost got kicked out of school mm-hmm. or suspended, at least, that she kind of hides out at home for a few days. And this sweet boy keeps showing up with like, her homework and maybe like a snack and just sort of like finding reasons to be at her house. Mm-hmm. It's very cute. It really is. And Hana sees him and quickly puts two and two together, obviously. And she's real chill about it too. Initially it feels problematic because he's pounding her and maybe it doesn't do the messaging the well, as well as it should have. But we do eventually come around to the idea that like, no, like she's actually okay with him. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's out of guilt. It's a weird thing to navigate. There's a million layers here, like there is with everything else in this movie, where Sohei probably should have just fucked off and not, like, harassed her out into the <laughs> middle of the, like, the yard at school. It's like, and maybe he would have an entire ass ear now, you know? Maybe, right, right. maybe <laughs> take that, viewers, as a lesson on consent. But otherwise... <laughs> She does kind of come around to be like, I guess this guy's pretty cool. Like, I just, we got to learn how to interact with each other a little better. I think, I don't even think it's that she was offended that he said that she smelled like dog, but that she was afraid he was going to figure it out. Yeah, he was getting too close to the thing she wasn't allowed to talk about. Mm -hmm. That's a very good clarification. Here's another thing from watching this in Japanese, this turnaround. Because in English, that's how it reads, 100%. That she said, oh, you smell like a dog. <laughs> oh, well, that's a fucked up thing to say to somebody you just met. <laughs> right. Um, but in, like, the Japanese, I think he just says, do you have, like, animals at home? Because you kind of smell like you do. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is much less an affront <laughs> to, Definitely. to somebody. And tracks very well with, like, what a third grader would say. Yeah. So, we're, while we're seeing... Yuki and Sohei sort of interacting. We're also seeing bits of Ame and the Sensei Fox. And there's this really good montage of them in various parts of the wilderness and the fox passing on sort of like wilderness survival skills and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And it comes to a head in a reversal of the scene when they first moved out to the farm where Yuki and Ame are arguing again about being fox and human. And this time, Yuki's pushing for spending more time as a human, and Ame is is arguing that he is a wolf. This movie does, at times, get into mixed messaging, as much as it does sure. well. And here's one of those moments, and this is just kind of baked in the premise because of what Hana was saying earlier. It's like, if you had to choose, would you be a wolf or a human? Mm-hmm. And I'm let down that there's not any glimpse of, like, you could just... You could be both. Like, you could just be yourself. Sure, yes. You don't have to hide half of yourself from the world. Practically, I understand in that society why they couldn't. Right. But right. The, the world will kill you if you try. But. Right. 
but it is disappointing. I agree. I mean, if we're talking about this being a like metaphor for otherness, um, right? The wolf, <laughs> the world will kill you for being the way you are anyway. Yeah. So oh. it's it's a little disappointing that we never get some amount of confirmation and be like, no, it's like you can be both. You're a wolf and you're a person. Like you just you are. That's right. what you are. You shouldn't have to choose to sequester half of yourself if you don't want to. I like to a headcanon. I like to imagine mm-hmm. that as they grow up past grade school age mm-hmm. and into adulthood, that maybe like their father, they learn to walk a little bit more in both spaces. Yeah. And he does it a little bit better. There's still like the slightest bit of an inclination that like he's more like man than than wolf. Right. Even when we see him in wolf form, like he's werewolfy. And it's the only time we see like a werewolfy looking thing in this entire movie, which is also a little disappointing, yeah. but still. This argument sort of simmers to a boil. Mm-hmm. They have it out real good, physical confrontation, and it doesn't feel settled. And you get the sense that this is kind of looming over the entire family for a bit. Until the summer, which the narration tells us is a storm summer. It's one of the worst kind of rainy, stormy seasons they've seen on the mountain. Mm -hmm. And this forces the conflict to a head because Sensei Fox is injured. He's got a bum leg Mm -hmm. and Ame is worried that he's going to die up there in the forest during these horrible rainstorms. And the mom is just so scared of letting her boy go that she kind of begs him to stay in the house and stay a human. This is such a, a difficult thing to navigate because he is a 10 year old boy. He is a 10 year old yeah. boy and she is a mom. And like what mom is not going to be like, you're a 10 year old boy. No, you can't. I, right. I see in your face that you feel like you're duty bound to take up his mantle and like right. <laughs> watch the mountain and keep it safe for every all the other creatures up there. But you're a 10 year old boy. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but then like when you're looking at what it's trying to teach you, she's basically come to the point where like, yeah, you can be whatever you want to be. But now that it affects me, your yeah. mother, I'm not on board with this. And yeah. It's there's a tension there. difficult. And I think that's, I'm sure that's true for many parents who have had to have variations of this discussion of, of course, I love you and respect you, and I know who you are, but I'm so scared of what's going to happen to you if you admit to the world who you are. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that Hamana made the right choice, but I do think the movie is honest about the way many parents react when presented with that scenario. I think that's true. And it's just, it's difficult. And you can Mm -hmm. see the pain in both of them at disappointing each other because they both recognize that this compromise is not winning for either of them and that each of them is letting the other down within it. Mm -hmm. Just from a practical standpoint, what do you tell the neighbors when your 10-year-old boy goes missing? Like, what do you tell them? Hey, where's your other kid? Didn't you used to have two kids? No, these aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> right. He went to live with his yeah. uncle. What's his uncle's name? Uh, uncle. Uh, uncle. His name is Uncle. <laughs> uncle Lupin. Yep. <laughs> yeah, there, there had to have been some spackling that she did there. And initially, it would hold up if you say like, yeah, you know, he went to live with some other family or, you know, he went to boarding school or whatever. 
But you'd think eventually they'd start saying, like, does he, like, never come home for holidays or, or anything? Mm-hmm. But whatever. That's not that's not the story this movie is telling. But I agree with you. It's a bit of a, a frustrating open end. Right. He took over an old man's job to watch over the mountain. Right. He lives up there now. <laughs> Maybe that's just what she says. Like, yeah, we hated to, you know, see him go, but he got an apprenticeship to a really great position that he couldn't pass up. And so... You know, he's off, like, studying under his master. I don't know. I mean, that's not entirely untrue. (laughs) Right. So, in the heart of the Summer of Rain, there is one enormous and devastating storm. It's big enough that they have to shut down school. All the kids' parents are coming to pick them up. Hana is getting ready to go pick up Yuki. But Ame finally can't take it anymore. This storm is big time and he knows sensei is in trouble so he runs off into the forest to try to find his sensei and hana in concern and fear chases after her son this results in two things number one hana gets lost in the woods and number two there's no one to pick up yuki at school I, now i read this a little bit different than you but i had assumed at this point sensei's fucking dead <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Like he died after that tree came down on him. However many days prior. That's probably accurate, honestly. And that that, like what the his reason for like I need to go amidst this giant storm. And he tells his sister before she leaves for school, don't go to school today, because he's kind of in tune with his like with what the weather's doing around him. Yeah. Yep. As a magical wolf boy is want to be. Sure. Yep. And, it, like, all of this is happening, and the mountain's in shambles, and he's thinking, I have to go take care of who he sees as his people on the mountain. Like, they need yeah, someone there absolutely. to guide him, and he's been the one apprenticing under who previously did that job. So he needs to go do that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think your interpretation is more accurate there. But, but a big flood coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hannah's just not equipped, A, to find her way through a forest that she has not explored, and B, especially in a giant flood. Mm-hmm. We've kind of skipped over a point with Sohei, which is there's a rumor around school that his mom has gotten remarried. Mm-hmm. And that is only significant because Sohei also gets left at school. No one comes to pick him up. And he is confronting these emotions that I think many children of blended families confront, which is now that there is a new parent in my life and a new sibling on the way. Is there room for me anymore? Does does my parent care about me now in the kind of new dynamic? Mm-hmm. And it gives us this really sweet moment between the two of them at school where they're saying, what if no one comes back? I guess we'll have to live here forever, which is a very like fourth grader logic, mm-hmm. right? Right. But they're sort of talking about that and making plans for what it might mean. And then they get into this kind of confessional time with each other where he opens up about worrying that he's going to be replaced by the new baby that his mom's having. Mm-hmm. And in this sort of shared moment of openness and honesty, Yuki confesses to him that she can turn into a wolf and that it was in fact her who ruined his ear all those years ago. And he kind of rolls his eyes and it's just like, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm not telling anybody. Because <laughs> he's a good friend. He's a good boy. He's a very good boy. Eventually. He's a very good boy eventually. Yes. 
a little bit of a shit he's lord at the there. beginning. But, he's, <laughs> but now he is as good as a fourth grade boy could possibly be. Yeah. So that's okay. That part of the story is doing all right at the moment. Hannah not doing so well. She is slipped and fallen and lost and conked on the head and kind of, she's, from a health perspective, she's okay at the moment, but she's unconscious and she's going to be in trouble. Mark, I know this is a very, like, high stakes portion of the movie and it's supposed to be, like, tense and, like, I'm supposed to be worried about everyone involved, but there's this moment where she's, like, falling down a hill and she grabs, like, a little plant. Mm -hmm. And we're not, you're older than me, close to the same age. And every time I see this scene, I think of that scene from Tommy Boy. (laughs) Where he falls down, he's like, hold strong, little root. And I crack myself up and it takes me out of the movie every single time I watch it. And I know that's a personal failing and not the fault of the director, but that's where I'm at. Yep. I will say this moment is beautiful because Hannah has a vision of her husband who tells her that she has done a very good job. She has lived up to her promise of taking care of her children. And he says, you've done great. They're going to be okay. That's a very, very very good moment and there's a sort of visual effect where she thinks she sees her son and she sees the like the silhouette of him turn into the silhouette of her husband and there's obviously some kind of undertones there about a boy becoming a man that's all very good Mm -hmm. i will say the dramatic stakes of this moment this is maybe the one place where the movie doesn't hit the dramatic beats that it wants to because at no point in any of my viewings of this did i ever feel like Hannah's life was at stake. Mm-hmm. It was very telegraphed for me, at least that Ame was going to, to be here and things would be okay. I knew that she was going to be okay. The moment where I didn't know if things were going to be okay. My first time watching this was when he fell into the river. I was like, Oh, that kid could just straight up mm, yes. be dead. That kid could yep. just be dead based off of how this movie has gone so far. I think every other emotional and dramatic beat in this movie hits very well. And maybe they weren't even like, maybe that wasn't the point of this one. Maybe we weren't supposed to fear for Hana. This was just the moment for Hana to know that things would be okay. Yeah. I think it was just a moment where she needs to, and I think it plays in directly after she sees the mom and her cubs and she's like frightened by them for a minute. And then kind of like, they just kind of let her go whenever the mom knows that like this lady's not going to hurt my kids. Yeah. So I think after seeing that and then like tumbling down and the little root not holding strong and her conking herself on her head and <laughs> taking her away to her liminal space as we are wont to do in these movies, uh, yep. which has the red outline thing that he does for <laughs> liminal space. And I love it. The outlines yep. are in red. It's a dumb little thing, but I love the aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. She's just kind of coming to terms with like, okay, like, it, it bookends Ome's life uh, under her care, really. These like yeah. liminal spaces, because we get one earlier in the movie, right after her man, husband, boyfriend, man, wolf thing. Um, right. Dies. He doesn't have a name in this movie. There's a moment early on where like he tells her like, it's going to be okay. And like, that's all that she needs to know is going to be okay. And then here she sees him and he's like, no, it's going to be okay. He knows who he is now. He like, is sure in his identity and he's gonna be all right you just have to like trust in your kid 
I know he's a 10-year-old boy, but that's a lot in Wolf Eaters. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so Ame does rescue his mother, takes her back to civilization, mm-hmm. and they have a moment. It's not much. There's not dialogue exchanged. Uh, she talks to him. Mm-hmm. But they have a moment where they recognize what has changed. It's like you said, wh- where she realizes she has to let him go to be who he is supposed to be. Yeah, there's a piece of dialogue specifically where she's like, is there nothing I could do for you in right. this moment? Where like, he, like you, his demeanor changes and he's like, it's like, yes. mom, you have given everything for me. <laughs> and there's just like that. Yeah. that ex- they don't have to tell you it, that that exchange is like right there. It's very beautiful. Yep. It is really, really. And again, I like to imagine that as he grows up and finds his role and learns how to be the guardian of this mountain, mm-hmm. that he does have like the occasional night where he slips home and gets to be with his mom. Mm-hmm. It seems like that must happen, right? Right. Like that that seems pretty likely that he's going to at least like keep an eye on her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no reason he can't still have a relationship with her. Being a wolf doesn't disqualify him from being her son. Mm-hmm. And there's all that time he could spend. We're headcanoning now, but he could spend yep. all that time just raising up another like apprentice. So yeah, that, like, he doesn't have to be there all the time. <laughs> and that's kind of where the movie ends. There's some more overhead narration where Yuki tells us that she goes off to boarding school the next year because she's entering middle school, uh, that Ame finds his place on the mountain, and that their mom continues to live in that house and continues to have a good and happy life. Mm-hmm. That's our movie. It ends with the two children kind of like being comfortable with who they are and like being able to share yeah. that and live the life they want to moving forward. So that was Wolf Children. That we did a wolf children. There's so many little things we didn't touch on, but that was wolf children. <laughs> a much smaller story in scope, but uh, I would say equal in its emotional weight to any of the other ones for sure. I feel like it's a denser movie, even though mm-hmm. it's light on plot. But it's dense in I, like yeah, it's dense in other ways. I don't have the words for it right now. <laughs> but like it layers on subtext over subtext over subtext yes. over subtext and that's probably why so many people love it so much okay ranking this movie would you believe that i hadn't thought about where i was going to put this until this very moment <laughs> i'm kind of glad in a sense because you're very familiar with these works mm-hmm. and i think it would have been easy for you to premeditate these decisions So I'm kind of glad to know that you haven't thought about it and are really letting those decisions happen in the course of these conversations. So I'm looking at my list and I do like I see a a natural split here between the movies that are very good and the movies that are just good for what they are. Yeah. In my ranking. And so I think it's going to go above all those. It's good for what they are. Sure. But all of those movies where he was playing in somebody else's playground. Right. So, like, the bottom of this list is going to be the same. Five is still going to be Digimon, or, well, whatever's in last place. I guess six now will be uh, the Digimon Adventure Pilot. Then five will be the uh, One Piece Baron, a Monstery, and the Secret Island movie. Number four is our war game. I'm sorry, our war game. You keep slipping further down this list, (laughs) but I still love you. 
And now I don't know what I'm doing, Mark. <laughs> it's so hard. This is the hardest by far of any of the series we've done. This is the hardest placement for a single movie <laughs> for me so far. Because I love all of these movies, just in different ways. And I'm looking at the girl who leapt through time, and I'm trying to weigh the pros and cons here. And I'm going to put the girl who leapt through time at number three. And while I have in the past loved that movie more and maintained that it is my second favorite, watching this in its original language, with its original mm-hmm. voice cast, with a better script, I, the English actors are great. The, those dub voices are great in my mind. There's a few that are a little bit miscast based off of the Japanese, but they do a serviceable job, and I like what they do with the characters. Sure. But the script is just tighter and better in the Japanese. So it's recontextualized the movie for me. <laughs> it's made me like the movie more than I had on my previous watches. I don't know why it took me so long to watch this movie in Japanese, but it did. And so I'm going to put it at number two. And that leaves Summer Wars at number one. And I know even that alone is contentious because people love this movie. But y'all don't realize how much this climbed for me. (laughs) This rewatch. And I think because of all the things it's juggling, uh, like on a subtextual level Mm -hmm. and on a metatextual level, on top of such a simple story. It's it's just a better movie than The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Even if I would rather watch The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Well, I don't even know if that's true anymore. <laughs> I'm rambling a lot, Mark. What I'm trying to say is I liked it more this time than I did yep. previously. Please do your ranking. <laughs> I am going to bring us back in line with consensus, which surprises me. Prior to watching this movie, I didn't expect it. But okay. I liked Wolf Children a lot the first time around. Perhaps I am just in a place right now where this story speaks extra strongly to me, but Mm -hmm. I was undeniably more moved by this movie than I have been any of them to date, and Wolf Children is my new number one. Oh, wow. The internet's gonna love you. (laughs) It's hard because I think on most days, if I had to pick one of them to watch, it would be Summer Wars. It's fun. Visually, I like what it's doing. I find that family very charming. Summer Wars is an easier sit down and watch for fun movie. Mm-hmm. But if I'm being honest with myself about not only which one hit me harder, but, but which one I earnestly felt was a better movie, it's Wolf mm-hmm. Children this time. Then maybe that'll change when I rewatch these again in a year or two. I watched it twice this week in prep for this show and... I may have even enjoyed it more the second time, despite the fact that I just watched it a few days ago. This movie speaks to me at this time and place in my life and in the world. This movie connected powerfully to me. I agree. It hit me harder this time around than it ever has prior. Everything else is staying the same, so I'll have Summer Wars, Girl Who Leapt Through Time, Our War Game, One Piece, and the Digimon Short. But Wolf Children is my new number one. Again, this is an embarrassment of riches that we are ranking here. Uh, It is splitting the finest of hairs between a collection of movies that I really enjoyed. I liked a One Piece a lot more than I... I watched and liked a One Piece. Yeah, I feel similarly about liking and (laughs) having watched a One Piece. So, while I am saying Wolf Children is my new number one, any of those top three movies are, you know, nine pluses on a 
on a <laughs> one to ten ranking. Mm-hmm. Man, that'd be a different show, wouldn't it? If we had to give these out of ten, <laughs> sure would. If we had to do any kind of like actual critical analysis <laughs> and not just talk out of our asses and stick them on an arbitrary list at the end, what a show that would be. All right, man. I guess that is the end of this podcast. There's a few more to go, which I am very glad about. I'm going to be sad when we leave this run of the program. What is next? Well, next is The Boy and the Beast. The Third One Sucks is a Retrograde Orbit radio production. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter at the Third One Sucks or email us at the Third One Sucks at gmail.com, where we can chat about episodes and take your suggestions on what you would like us to cover in the future. That's the the number three RD One Sucks at gmail.com. If you aren't already tired of our voices, you can check out our other projects, including Mindful Self Indulgence, where Dan interviews folks about the media that has most impacted their lives, and Mount Olympus, where Mark and a panel of friends watches and reviews the Hercules and Xena television franchises, along with the rest of the Retrograde Orbit Radio family of podcasts at RetrogradeOrbitRadio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in the sequel.